Bibles over to Acts chapter 26. So we continue through the book of Acts. Also remind me at the end of the service if I forget that we need to pick up the chair, stack the chairs after the service. So if a few of you guys could hang around for a couple minutes and help do that, that would be great. Acts 26, as you might recall, um, Paul had been there in Caesarea for quite some time under arrest. The Jews down in Jerusalem had pressured the uh, originally Felix, who kind of rescued Paul because the Jews were going to kill him. Felix brought him to Caesarea, kept him around, never really charged him. Then Festus took over as governor, and Festus didn't know what to do with him. Um, talked to him, had a good conversation, several good conversations, but he was afraid to turn him loose because he would lose popularity with the Jews. If you were the governor over that region, you wanted to keep the peace with the Jews. Um, at the same time, uh, he knew Paul hadn't done anything wrong. So he just kept him there. And he saw his opportunity to get the, get the monkey off his back when um, King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, had come to Caesarea. Agrippa was the king of that region as a part of the Roman Empire, and Agrippa was also of Jewish origin, so um, probably didn't have a real solid Jewish faith, but he certainly understood all about Judaism. And so, um, so Festus, uh, well, Paul had already said, hey, I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. They'll just kill me there, and I don't mind dying, but I don't want to die for something I didn't do. Um, so he said, as a Roman citizen, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And so then it was, uh, that was the Roman law. Once you appealed to Caesar, you could go to Rome. Every citizen had the right to, to take their um, appeal all the way to the, to the emperor. And so he was going to do that, but now, beginning with verse uh, 26, um, he had his chance to talk to Agrippa. Now, this is often called... Paul's defense before Agrippa, and maybe there's an element of defense to it, but because Paul, and we'll see by the end of the chapter, because Paul had already appealed to Caesar, there was really not much that Agrippa could do that would help Paul. The only thing he could do is say, yeah, he's worthy of death, and, and then he'd still be able to go to Rome in order to appeal that sentence. And so, um, this wasn't as much of an appeal as it was Agrippa was interested in hearing what the deal was with Paul. The things that he had heard were just hard to figure. Why, why would people hate him so much? Why would they be against him so much? And so um, this was an opportunity really for Paul to, again, as he had done before several times, just share his testimony. So more than a defense, it's really just an explanation to Agrippa of what Paul's story is and what his situation was. And it's a, it's a brilliant presentation that he puts on. Earlier, the Jews had uh, you know, brought prosecution against Paul by using a great orator. And, and here we see that Paul could hold his own as an orator when he needed to. And it was really a, an amazing message that he gives. Probably happened, if you've ever been to Israel... Um, and to Caesarea, or even if you've seen pictures of it, right there in the, on the shores of Caesarea is an incredible 
or the incredible ruins of a, of a stadium. And the stadium had a view of the ocean, and it has seats all around it of stone. There are royal boxes. They had chariot races there and things like that. It's, to me, it's one of the most beautiful places in Israel, probably the most beautiful. It's just impressive. And that same place where Paul, no doubt, gave his defense on several occasions, I've been able to to preach there as well. And you think of the history in that building. Imagine, see, when this happened, it wasn't just a private audience with Agrippa, Festus, and Paul. They would routinely bring someone in as sort of entertainment. They didn't have movies in those days. And so if there was someone who was a gifted orator, they would bring them right there in Caesarea to that stadium and allow them to address uh, you know, the king but, or the governor, um, as in Festus and Agrippa, but also to address the audience. People who were interested, all the academics would come there in order to just hear, okay, what do you, you, know, what do you have to say? And so um, it is, you can picture this place. I mean, it would seat in its original form. Even today, you can seat, um, boy, a couple thousand people there, but a part of it has been broken away. So it would, it would have an even greater capacity than that. And um, so you have to picture Paul walking into this stadium full of people with Herod Agrippa in the royal box with all of his regal apparel and all the guards and horses and trumpets and all this sort of stuff. And here Paul, who's been in jail for several years, a scruffy little dude, steps up and, and has his say. Agrippa said to Paul, verse 1, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand. <laughs> he was like, okay, I'm going to get this down. And it was very typical in those days when someone would speak to use a gesture of sticking their hand out as a way of saying, okay, here, here I am and here's what I have to say. So he stretched out his hand and he answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. And remember when he says the Jews, he's talking about particular Jews. He's not talking about all Jews. Agrippa was a Jew and, and so was Paul. But he said, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews, therefore I beg you to hear me patiently. So he sets it up by acknowledging, and he, and he wasn't just puffing Agrippa up. It was true. Agrippa, we know from secular history, was well-versed in Judaism and in the Old Testament scriptures and things like that. But Paul is addressing it in a way that he's also addressing the people in the audience. He's just going, okay, Agrippa, let me tell you, you know what you're talking about, and I respect you. So let me just lay this out for everyone to hear. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Now Paul came from Tarsus up in southern Turkey, but um, as he, for the bulk of his education, he came down to Jerusalem. And of course in those days, the Jews would, who were Orthodox would regularly traveled down to Jerusalem. So he said, hey, I was there. Everybody knows it. They knew me from the first, if they are willing to testify. 
See, the people who actually knew him and should have been witnesses wouldn't come to Caesarea, and they wouldn't tangle with him. And so he's going, they aren't here, but if you get them, they could tell you that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the people who wanted to adhere most rigidly to the restrictions of the law. They were very, very, very good people. Good for the wrong reasons. Good because they felt like they had to. Um, Not the kind of righteousness that God wants from people, but nonetheless, inscrutable as far as accusation is concerned, and certainly no one could say that a Pharisee wasn't really Jewish enough because they were totally into it. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. He said, right now I'm standing here and I'm a, I've been a prisoner for years because I believe in that which the Old Testament prophets addressed, that which they predicted. So he goes, I'm on trial for believing Judaism. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. <coughs> he said, I'm in trouble because I believe the Bible more than they do. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Perhaps Agrippa was one of those more like a Sadducee who was Jewish and believed in all the nice stories, but he didn't actually believe in resurrection. Of course, Paul makes clear in several places that he felt that the Old Testament scriptures talked concerning the resurrection, in particular the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Messiah, as he cites, among other things, some of those messianic psalms that talk about his body not seeing corruption. And so he says, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, okay, hang on to the resurrection thought for a minute, but listen, personally, I was more against the Christians and against Jesus than most people were. This I also did in Jerusalem, argued against Jesus and Many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You couldn't be more anti-Christian than Paul was at this point, because he felt that Christianity was blasphemous against Judaism at this time, didn't understand the ramifications, really, of the resurrection or the application of the Old Testament scriptures as they were seen in the life of Jesus. So, We know from earlier in Acts, several times it's mentioned that Paul was the one who they put put their coats at his feet as Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was being stoned over in Acts chapter 6. And, and, um, you know, that means that he was in charge. He was the guy that cast the deciding vote. And I punished them often in every synagogue. Went to the synagogues and threw the Christians out compelled them to blaspheme. Blaspheme just means to speak against God in a horrible way. He obviously didn't have them speak against God per se, but he had them speak against Jesus Christ, which Paul now regards as blasphemy because Jesus is God. And he said, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He was so mad that he just 
continued to persecute them and went as far as he could in order to hassle them. It's interesting how when someone is starting to weaken, they get angry. Anger is usually a sign of a weak argument. So generally when people are arguing, you see the one who's the most angry, they're probably wrong. And so Paul at this point is getting mad at Jesus. Why would Jesus pose a threat to him? He's already dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, this thing would die out easily. But, but Paul was getting angry because God was really already working in his heart, I would suspect. And I see a lot of the guys today who are atheists, there are a lot of atheists in the world, and, or you know, agnostics where they go, I don't know, I don't think there's really a God. But the ones that fascinate me and the ones that I pray for a lot are the angry atheists. Um, the ones who write books about how they hate God, you know, God isn't good, God is bad, and all these sorts of things. And when I see, you know, men like Richard Dawkins and people like that who are just so hostile to Christianity, I think God's probably doing something in their life. He's still not going to force them to accept him. But why would you get angry at something that doesn't exist? You know, I'll... I don't see any little children in here, so I'll say this. I don't really believe in Santa Claus. Don't believe in a fat guy in a red suit that comes down the chimney, okay? Um, sorry if that shatters some of you, but you, you can have your own opinion. It's cool. If you still believe in him, it doesn't bug me at all. I don't believe in Santa Claus. I don't believe in the Easter bunny. Um, you know, but I'm not mad at him. I don't like see Santa Claus and go, oh, I just want to rip his furry head off. I just want to, and I don't see the Easter bunny and go, I'm going to shoot him with a shotgun and cook him up into some stew. It, they're pretend. So I'm not, I don't have a problem with them. I don't have a problem with somebody believing in Santa Claus. I don't feel like I have to be on a crusade. When you see people crusading against something, um, especially where anger is involved, it's because they're nervous. It's because they're insecure. It's because they're not as sure about their own position as they can be. I don't mind at all talking to people who believe in religions that are different than I believe. I don't get mad at them. I don't, I'm not threatened by them. I'm not afraid that if I talk to them, somehow they're going to grab me and program my brain so that I will believe what they believe. I'm pretty secure in what I believe. I don't really need to get mad about it. And here you see the first hint of God working in Paul that he was just passionately angry about this Christianity. And so he said, uh, but he had this authority, punished them, exceedingly enraged against them and persecuted them all over the place. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus, the capital of Syria, north of Israel, with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, right in the middle of the day, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. All of a sudden, all this light, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were these things that um, the King James, James calls them a prick, but it's a stick with a poke, sharp thing on the end of it. 
And when they were making um, cattle move along, they didn't have electric cattle prods, so the goat or the prick was a, was a manual cattle prod with spikes on it. And so they'd poke the leg of the cattle a little bit, and, and it would cause them to move in the direction that they wanted them to move. Sometimes a, 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 an oxen or a bull didn't like that too much, and they would kick it, which of course hurts only that much more. So Jesus is saying to Paul, you're, you're fighting against me and it's starting to hurt you that much more because of your battle. And so he's going, why are, you, why are you making this more difficult on yourself? Why do you want to fight that which I am doing? So I said, who are you, Lord? By the way, some people have asked me, do you think it's possible that Paul could have seen Jesus before he was a Christian? Certainly was raised in Jerusalem and um, you know, maybe he would even recognize Jesus from having been there. Perhaps he was even one of those who um, stood around as Jesus was crucified. My gut feeling is no, but it's a possibility. The reason I doubt it is that there would have been a more of a direct connection. Jesus probably would have mentioned it, but certainly in Paul's testimony, he wouldn't have been able to help but mention it. He mentioned several times that he was the one who was in authority when Stephen was stoned. So I kind of I, I think this is the first time that Paul actually, you know, spoke to Jesus. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. So Jesus says, the Jews and the Gentiles are both going to be after you, but I'll actually deliver you from both of them. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You can just sense the drama in the stadium. As Paul comes out here and he says, look, I'm a Jew, hardcore, big time, was into it, used to persecute Christians, made, forced them to deny their faith, and sets that stage, and then he goes, one day, boom, a light brighter than the sun knocks me down and everybody else, and this voice that identified itself as Jesus began to speak to me and said, from now on, your job is to work for me, telling people the great news that their sins can be forgiven. Jews and Gentiles alike can have a fresh start, and you get to bring that story. And as long as you bring that story, I will protect you from those who would fight against you. And you can just sense the drama escalating. Everybody loves to hear someone who's had a strange experience. Because we're all sort of fascinated with things that are unexplained, things that are a bit mystical. And so when someone shares a story, it's hard not to listen to it. But to hear a story like this that took a guy from a successful career as a Jewish leader... Um, who was arrogant and hateful and angry. And instantly this experience 
turned him into someone who was loving to Gentiles as well as Jews and who would risk his life and devote his life, though it cost him his life, though he was beaten and stoned and, and wrecked in so many different ways, you gotta, everyone sitting there had to go, you got to be kidding me. What in the world, what possible motivation could there be for this guy to make up a story like this? And yet, for many of them being Gentiles, they probably thought, this is the first hardcore Orthodox Jew who has ever said anything nice about us, who's ever told us that our sins could be forgiven. And I, and I think that a lot of the people sitting there, perhaps even Agrippa, in their heart, there was this nagging sense of, is this even possible? Could this be true? Is it, is it possible that, our, that we could go from darkness to light? That we could receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance? To really be set apart for God? Is that, is that possible? Most all of them had been trying to get that in different ways. Some of them through Judaism. Others through all sorts of Babylonian mystery cults and, and Roman and Greek mythology and everything else. But, you know, they were all trying to find God. And now he's, there's, this guy is standing there, this gutsy little dude, who's saying, I saw this, I heard this, and it changed my life. So he says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He goes, what could I do? I mean, this is a light brighter than the sun, a voice telling me what to do. You think I should just blow him off and just go, nah, not into that. I wasn't disobedient to it. But I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Kind of a summary of the message that he took. First he preached it up there in Syria, and then as he moved down toward Judea, the southern part of Israel, in Jerusalem, and finally as it was kind of rejected there, he's gone throughout the rest of the Gentile world, all through Asia Minor and over onto the Grecian Peninsula, and not yet to Italy, but he would make it there late, you know, later on here in a couple chapters. But he said, that's all I did. I told the people, you can start over. He said, I, I gave them a message that they should turn, that they should repent, that they should turn to God. You can change the direction of your life. And then he said, and just do works that's befitting of repentance. If you've changed, let it show in your life. Believe that it's possible for you to live your life differently than you've been living it. Believe that change is actually possible. And so he said, that's what I was declaring to people. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come that the Messiah, the Christ, would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. This wasn't a popular message when he gave it just to Jews, but in a mixed audience, this was, this was refreshing. 
And he goes, this is why the Jews are mad at me, because I'm preaching what the Old Testament preaches. I'm just preaching what the Bible says. And they have a problem with that. And Paul obviously and many times brought up scriptures that demonstrated salvation was also for Gentiles. That the Messiah would suffer. He, he shared with them from Isaiah as it talked about in Psalm 22 and other places where it talked about this Messiah who would suffer and be killed and rise from the dead. He goes, all, my only Bible is the Old Testament. He's like, I don't have a New Testament yet. It's just the Old Testament I'm preaching and that's what they're so mad at me about because I'm trying to proclaim light. Now as he thus made his defense, oh and by the way imagine all the people who are listening are going, really? This is for everybody? You're telling every, this, is, this could be for me? At that point as he made his defense Festus, the governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Festus didn't understand that much about Judaism. And I think he felt like you could just sense the electricity in the arena. And he felt like he had to say something because he probably thought Agrippa would be hostile to this. It was like, I don't understand what you're saying, but you're starting to get the people on your side. And so I'm just going to make fun of you. Um, generally when people don't have a good response for you a result will be for them to say you're crazy or you don't know what you're talking about or you know in this case obviously you're smart but you're so smart you're like a typical genius you're just a genius who's gone nuts as the King James says much learning maketh thee mad one time I was having an argument with Cheryl Broderson when she was younger and and uh I forget what we were arguing about, but I think I was holding my own pretty well in the argument, which is not easy with Cheryl. She's, she's a, quite, a, quite a debater, but she finally got herself backed up against the wall and she said, Dave, much learning maketh thee mad. <laughs> Quoting Festus. But, uh, <laughs> but Paul had to come back. He said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. He goes, no, this actually is true and it makes sense. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. Paul says, Festus, you may think it's crazy, but the king who's sitting next to you, he knows this stuff. He's heard about it. He can attest to it. He can tell you that, yes, in fact, what I'm teaching is the Word of God. This is legit. This is real. And um, so he said, so Festus, if you think this is crazy, Agrippa, is this crazy? He says, he turns to Agrippa, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. <laughs> so now you could just cut the air with a knife. And Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. People have debated whether Agrippa was mocking him. Like what? Are you trying to make me a Christian? Or if he was just saying, uh, you know, no, yeah, not hardly. Or if he was legitimately saying, yeah, you've got a point here. Um, regardless of which it is, and what we know about King Agrippa 
the suspicion is that he was being sincere. He wasn't known for meanness or sarcasm. He was really a very um, gratuitous guy. And, um, but he came close. He started, he could feel it in the audience. He could sense it in Paul's passion. He, and he was like, wow. And, but he wasn't ready to actually become a Christian. He was just ready to say, that was close. It's really sad how many people come really close and never actually turn their life over to the Lord. I think a lot of them sit in churches every week and they're sitting there like Agrippa going, almost. I haven't changed yet, but I'll get there. Someday, someday something's going to happen and I'll actually turn my life over to the Lord. I'll actually live my life differently, but Right now, um, I'm just a fan. I'm just going to go, nice, I like that. Yeah, the man upstairs, cool. And they have that attitude that you can sort of be a Christian. That you can kind of, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm a Christian. If you look at all the choices out there, I'm not a Mormon, not an atheist, I'm not Methodist, I'm not a Baptist. So yeah, I mean, I guess you could call me a, a Christian. Um, that's okay with me. Um, how sad if anyone hears the, the word and their heart is actually convicted by it, that seed is sown in their hearts and yet either the, the birds come and take the seed, snatch the seed away or it's you know it doesn't bear you know good good roots and so then the wind blows it off or something happens to keep you from going 100% for God now i'm not saying that there's no such thing as a christian who's just kind of weak as a christian i'm sure i'm sure that's possible but i don't know why anybody would want to settle for that because there are a lot of warnings against that sort of thing and either you believe what God says or you don't. And I mean, frankly, I wouldn't waste my time talking to you. I wouldn't waste my time going to church, reading the Bible, if I didn't believe that it's absolutely true. And once I believe it's absolutely true, then it deserves to tell me how to live. And so I don't want to be anything but 100% sold out to Jesus Christ. Because I understand and I have seen people who are almost there and they just never get there. They just never make that step of commitment. They can be great people. They can be really people that I would enjoy being around. And they like Jesus, like the idea, seen the movies, read the book. But in terms of that commitment, they just haven't got there yet. And I think a lot of struggles that so-called Christians have, have something to do with the fact that they are a so-called Christian, haven't committed their life fully to Jesus. I'm not saying that if you really become a Christian, you stop struggling, because Paul had tons of struggles. So no promises that it makes it easy. The question is, have you decided to really live your life 100% committed to Jesus? Is he what matters most to you? Um, if not... Um, it's sad because being a half-hearted Christian is 
is a miserable place to live. It's awful. Um, get off the fence and, and decide to commit yourself completely. Agrippa didn't get there, and so he said, I'm almost. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Now he's working the crowd. He has chains attached to him. Probably he's attached to his guard, which was a typical thing they would do with prisoners in those days. And so here he is standing there preaching, and, he, and as Agrippa says, you almost have me, then Paul just gave it his last shot. And he thrust his hands into the air and he said, I wish everyone here could be like me. And then he thought of the irony of it, um, except for having a guy chained to me. Other than that, I wish you guys could hear what I've heard. I wish you could know what I know. I wish you could feel what I felt. That's all I, that's all I want for all of you. Powerful close to, to his message. And when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they went back into the green room and, and they talked among themselves and said, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. They're both going, this is crazy. This guy's on trial for believing the Old Testament and preaching his particular understanding, comprehension of it and his own personal experiences. But then, And Festus would have loved it if Agrippa just said, let's just let him go. But he didn't want to take that responsibility and take the blame for it. But now Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. A little bit of a shot at Festus. He's like, well, if you hadn't backed him into a corner and had him appeal to Caesar, you should have let him go. But, so again, Paul's innocent, but he's going to go to Rome. And so the voyage begins in chapter 27, when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, Luke was with him at the point and went on the boat with him. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So a guy who was over 100 soldiers. And they entered a ship of a dramatium. And that was where it was from. That was a city. The ship was built probably there. A dramatium is in um, Asia Minor. And we put to sea meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. Aristarchus is mentioned several times by Paul as somebody who accompanied him. He ended up going to Rome with him and being there when he was in prison as well. He was from Thessalonica. Um, so they got on the boat, and the plan was to sail from Caesarea and to head um, across to uh, Asia Minor and then try to catch another ship there. Um, but the next day, we landed at Sidon, which is just north of Caesarea a little ways. There's Tyre and Sidon there on the coast. And probably um, they were having more difficult seas. The Mediterranean sometimes can just really whip itself up. And so they, they only made it to Sidon at this point. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. So Paul had a lot of friends up there because, you know, he's, his base, his home base was Antioch in Syria, which was north of here. And so people came down, met with him, and fed him and gave him supplies and things like that. 
And when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. So if we have the map, there it is. They started out here in Caesarea, because Paul had been sent from Jerusalem to Caesarea. They started heading up here, but for some reason they veered off to Sidon, so Paul was able to fellowship with those guys. Then as they sailed up this way, they went inside Cyprus, the island, so that they could avoid a lot of the choppy seas and made it as far as here, as you can see there, to Myra. And then they hitched a ride on another ship that was a ship from Alexandria down in Egypt. This was a ship that was full of wheat that was heading, intentionally heading to Rome. The fact that it was up there in Myra means that probably the seas were rough enough that they weren't able to sail directly where they were going. So um, these guys hitched a ride um, on, on that ship there in Myra. And um, they, uh, when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snedus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon passing it with difficulty, and we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. So you can see, I mean, they got here fairly quick, even in rough seas. But this part of the journey, and then they thought, well, they're probably going to head across here, but as they went this way, there were probably storms up here. They were able to get to Crete. Fair Havens is right there in Lycia, and it took them a long time just to get that far. So this was a rough, a rough journey. And um, so uh, then as they were, as they were there, um, passing it with difficulty, they got to Fair Havens. Now when much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous, they stayed there. It took so long to get there is probably what it means. It was now dangerous because the fast was already over. Um, probably, uh, it's not necessarily that they were fasting, most of them, but, but the fast was probably making reference to the Day of Atonement, which comes on our calendar, it'd be late September, or early October generally. So that's when the seas really start whipping up in the Mediterranean. So what he's saying was it was getting to that time when it's a rough time to sail. And Paul advised them and said, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. We don't know if that's something that God told him or if he just sensed it because he had spent a lot of time on ships and in shipwrecks and things like that. So he's just telling them, hey, this isn't going to go well. It's an interesting thing. If God told him this, um, there are several times in this chapter where it's like God says something's going to happen, but the implication is it's going to happen if you do what you're going to do. So it was a warning. And, um, but he said, hey, you're going to lose all this wheat, and we're all going to die, and the ship's going to be ruined. But the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship. They just wanted to finish their job and get home than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor wasn't suitable to winter, 
in the majority advised to get sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest in winter there. So they said, look, we can't stay here. This is a, this is a southern harbor, and this isn't a safe place to go. So we will try to, their, their attempt was, was to, to make it over to Phoenix, just come along here, which was apparently a more sheltered, a more sheltered harbor. And so they said, that's what we'll do. It didn't work out that way. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, they're like, hey, this looks like a good day to sail. They put out to sea and sailed close by Crete, stayed on the coast. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euryclidon, particular kind of storm apparently. We don't know anything else about it. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. We just go, okay, you're driving. They just let the ship go. And running under the shelter of an island called Clada, we secured the skiff with difficulty. The skiff was the little, like the small boat that they would use, to, the tender boat. And so they knew they were in for rough seas, so they pulled the, the skiff up and secured it, tightened it. And um, they also... Um, as he says here, when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. This was pretty common in those days with, with wooden ships. Is When they were going into a storm, they would drop a cable down, hang onto it from both sides, and pull it underneath the ship and secure it to kind of hold the whole thing together. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day, they lightened the ship. They started throwing things off. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. They kept some anchors, we'll see later, but most of the extra, most of the anchors and most of the, everything weighed something. They were just tossing it out. Now, this is when they were out in the middle. You can see where the line goes, because they were just all over the place, out there just trying to survive. And uh, now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, they didn't know if it was day or night because it was so cloudy and kind of a hurricane-type situation, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. We just figured we were dead. But after long abstinence from food, which is kind of interesting, they figured they were dead so they didn't eat. Um, I know a lot of people are saying if they were on that carnival ship off the coast of Mexico, they're like... Great, they could eat all the Pop-Tarts they wanted, you know. This. But, uh, you know, they were just like, I don't even feel like eating. And Paul stood up in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Don't you love a guy like that? I told you. And not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. We're going to lose the ship, but nobody's going to die. For there stood by me this night an angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. He goes, An angel just came to me and said, I'm going to Rome. And because you guys are with me, you're going too. Nobody's going to die. What a testimony of boldness. And, and also of the fact that, you know, it would have been easy for God to just say, Paul's the guy that needs to go to Rome. I promised him. These other guys, a bunch of prisoners, soldiers, sailors, who cares about them? But 
it's interesting that because they were close to Paul, they were protected as well. And, and there's something to learn from that. The associations that we make and people we are close to rub off on us. And sometimes you can be blessed just by being close to somebody who's blessed, who's being blessed. I remember years ago on an airplane with Pastor Chuck, one of the, one of the stewardesses came up to Pastor Chuck and, and said, I always love it, Chuck, when I see you on my, on my plane. And he goes, well, why? And he said, they said, because I know God's not done with you, so I know the plane's going to land. <laughs> and this is the kind of thing, Paul's like, you know what, God's not done with me, guys, so stick with me and you'll be blessed too. To be able to provide that protection for others. And I guess the question for me and for you is, um, how safe is it to be around us? How much do we protect others? How much do we intercede for them? How much do we bring blessing to their lives? Are we more like a porcupine that nobody can get very close to us because we poke them? Or are we someone who, when someone gets close to us, they feel safer, they feel uh, more secure, they feel more protected? May God help us to be the kind of people who others get blessed just by being close to us, just by being around us. And Paul was that for sure. And so he said, uh, you know, this angel had come and, and said this, and, um, and he said, and don't worry, take heart, because I believe God that it'll be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. He goes, we're going to crash into an island. Now when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings, and sounding is... They would have a rope with knots in it in regular lengths, and they would drop it down to see how deep it was. Um, and so they, they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. A fathom is about six feet. A fathom would be measured by extending both of your arms out, and from the tip of your middle finger to the tip of your other middle finger would be considered a fathom. And so the, it was 20 fathoms. And when they'd gone a little further, it was 15 fathoms. And then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern, from the back of the boat, and they prayed for daylight. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, <laughs> see what happened, the sailors were like, we, we can't get everybody to shore. So let's just get the skiff out, and we'll pretend like we're dropping anchor, but we're actually dropping the skiff. We jump in, we'll bail on these guys. And uh, so that's what they were, they were heading out to do this. And uh, Paul saw what was going on, and he said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. If they leave, everybody dies. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. They kind of learned that Paul is a guy you should listen to. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. He said, you guys haven't eaten in two weeks? Let's eat. 
the boat's getting crashed up by the rocks, the, the anchors are holding it down, the storm is still going, they can't see, they know there's land near. And Paul goes, this is a good time to eat. A lot of times when you don't feel like eating, it would still be good to eat. Um, if you really feel like eating a lot, maybe it'd be good not to. But, but uh, it's important. It's one of the things that you teach people who are going through some sort of life crisis or um, you know, catastrophe of some sort is you've lost a loved one or something like that. It's really important to eat because eating and drinking allows your body to take care of itself, to put off those nutrients that end up energizing you and and fasting at a time when you are in distress or when you're really bummed isn't the greatest thing to do, having a meal is. And so Paul made up some food, and, and uh, he, he broke it first. And, and he said, uh, you know, uh, he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all, and when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged, and they also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship. If they could skid it up on the sand, they'd be able to get out and walk to shore. So they let go of the anchors and just cut the ropes, left them in the sea, loosened the rudder ropes, hoisted the mainsail to the wind, so they could be blown toward shore, and they made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, that is, there was a little isthmus, um, perhaps an underwater isthmus, but a place where there were two deep places with a shallow place in between. They hit that, ran the ship aground. See, if they could have skidded up on the beach, the boat would have been saved. And Paul had already said the boat's not going to be saved. So they skidded up, ran it aground, the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the winds. I kind of like that image. The front of the boat is stuck there and it's solid. The back of the boat's falling apart and the water's coming towards you. Great incentive to move forward. And I think a lot of times God does this in our lives where he just cuts off a lot of our options. We're maybe tempted to go backwards. We're maybe tempted to stay where we are. But God so graciously begins to wipe out where we are so that we'll go where he wants to take us. So they didn't have much of a choice. Maybe you've been in that situation. A lot of times when you think you've lost something, it's just God tearing away the back of the boat so you'll head to the front and be able to go where you're going to be saved. And so... The stern was being broken up. So if you feel like your stern's being broken up, <laughs> you know, uh, remember this. Move forward. You know, keep going in the right direction. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. Because if a prisoner escaped, they would be on the hook for it. And so they thought, let's just kill the prisoners. But the centurion wanted to save Paul. Paul had made such an impact during this voyage that... The centurion wanted him to survive, so as a result, he told the guys, no, don't kill prisoners. And uh, he kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. 
Some of them grabbed a chunk of wood that was broken off. Some people see this as an early reference to surfing in the Bible. But they just grabbed whatever they could if they couldn't swim, and amazingly, they all made it to land. Now, when they had escaped, they found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled the fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. So they came to this little island of Malta. And you can see, I mean, it's, they were heading, this is Italy right here. Rome is up here. So they really got blown pretty close to Italy, but they crashed right here in Malta. People there were nice and hospitable. And so um, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, they had a fire there, and he laid them on the fire. Kind of interesting, Paul didn't see himself as being, you know, above a task like gathering wood. But as he put them on the fire, a viper, a poisonous serpent, snake, came out because of the heat. It was probably in the wood, and it fastened on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. Nobody really wanted to help him. They figured, well, I guess he got killed because the storm was trying to kill him, didn't do it, and so he deserved to die, and now he's going to die. But Paul just looks down at this snake, and he just goes, eh, just shook it off into the fire. Nothing happened. Suffered no harm. They were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. <laughs> That's so funny to me. And I was like, he's a murderer and he deserves to die. Or maybe he's God. <laughs> People are so fickle. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius. He had a big place. He was the most prominent person there. and He received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. And Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid, laid hands on him and healed him. Now when this was done... The rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. It's cool that these people reached out to Paul and to those with him and, and were courteous to him. And this guy opened his estate to them. And as a result, his dad and a lot of other people were healed. They also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. Gave them clothes and food and you know, just really bless them. So it turned out to be a blessing to go to Malta. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship, another ship coming from Egypt, whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, uh, not in upstate New York, this is Syracuse here, we stayed three days. From there, we circled around and reached Regium, and after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Puteoli, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. So now they're in a more protected area from Malta, so they right up to Syracuse, right up here to Regium. Now they're inside the bay, and it's a simple thing to come up here, and then they're going to end up working their way over to Rome. 
But it was cool that they ran into some Christians there. And they stayed with them for a week and then headed towards Rome. From there, when the brethren heard about us, Christians in Rome, they came to meet us as far as appeal forum and three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. He had known about these guys. He had friends who had been there in Rome. He knew a lot of them you know, by name and, and had written to them and everything. And now he sees the beginning of the Christians in Rome. And he was so excited. And so uh, he took courage and he thanked God. Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. He was the one guy who chose to be a prisoner. He was the one guy who was totally okay, and he had saved everyone, um, his faith and his relationship with God. And so they made a special deal with him. Just like in Caesarea, he kind of had his own rental house and just had a, had a guard attached to him. Same kind of deal initially in Rome. A little later in Rome, we find out from extra-biblical um, literature that he was put into a dungeon and ultimately killed, but the book of Acts doesn't go that far. Um, it's interesting from piecemealing it together from extra-biblical stuff and from Paul's letters, Paul was constantly leading his prison guards to the Lord. And so the Romans were really frustrated because they would get a real hardcore Roman soldier and chain him to Paul 24 hours a day. Next thing you know, they're in there praising the Lord together. So they go, that's it. I'm not going to leave you with a Christian guard. So they'd fire that guard and they'd bring another hardcore Roman guard in. Next thing you know, that guy's reading the Bible with Paul and some of Paul's letters. He goes, oh yeah, all the guards said to tell you hi. <laughs> you know, was, eventually, I'm sure they figured we better not keep giving them fresh meat. But Paul just, he loved being, having a captive audience like that. So it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So the Jews there in Rome, the, the synagogues in Rome, he called them together. And when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So Paul says, you guys need to understand, I believe the way you do. I believe in the prophets, I believe in Moses, I believe the Old Testament, and I haven't done anything contrary to that, um, but believe it or not, our friends, our Jewish friends in Jerusalem turned me over to the Romans. And this to these people would feel like, you've got to be kidding me. And so he said they didn't have any cause. They examined me, wanted to let me go. The Romans wanted to let me go, but because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, the only way I could save my life. Not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. He said, look, I don't have anything against Jews. I don't have anything against Israel. I don't have anything against what we believe. But I ended up coming here, and now I want to share with you guys that I have discovered that which we've all been waiting for, the hope of the nations. And he is. Jesus is the hope of all nations. There's no hope in anyone else solving the problems that this world has. Um, 
you know, that, all that's, you know, been gone for a long time. But, you know, he, he says, hey, you know, I didn't deserve to die, but I had to appeal to Caesar. And so because of it, I wanted to talk to you guys because the hope of Israel, I'm bound with this chain. And they said to him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. So they go, I don't know if we trust you. Um, normally, if you'd come somewhere and you were cool with the Jews, they would send you a letter of recommendation. So we haven't heard that. At the same time, nobody here is saying anything about you being a bad guy, so we just don't know. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, Christianity, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. We've heard it's bad, but why don't you give us your spiel? So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his location there in his home, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. So he was doing his best to take them through the whole Old Testament and say, this is about Jesus. And they listened. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some didn't. So what was typical often with very religious Jews, if they disagreed, they would really have a great fight about it. And it was starting to get hot. When they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, he said, hey, Here's a scripture that reminds me of you guys. And quoting there in Isaiah 6, go to this people, this was when God was calling Isaiah, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. He was getting fed up with them, their stubbornness, and he goes, you know what? Isaiah, when he was called to prophesy, God told them, look, you're going to talk, but a lot of people aren't going to hear it. They're not going to see it. They're going to shut themselves off to it. And Paul said he was, the Holy Spirit was speaking about you guys. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. If you guys don't want to hear it, they will. And when he had said those words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. You can imagine how that went. Can you believe it? He's saying that the Gentiles are going to be saved and not us. Saying that God's going to reject us and just go to the Gentiles, that's horrible. And the other people are going, yeah, but look, he... He gave us this opportunity. It's true, that's what Isaiah said. It's true that all the scriptures that he shared with us are kind of making sense. The other guy's going, you go, oh, no way, that's crazy. There's no, Gentiles, the goyim, they're gross, they're disgusting, this is sick. And so they began to fight. And, uh, and then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. He had a ministry there in his house preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which 
concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. <laughs> Apparently, the way he conducted himself was so um, laudatory that nobody tried to stop him. Nobody, I mean, he's chained. He's not making anyone come. He's just sharing forgiveness. People like that. You know, a lot of times people get mad at us because the message that we share a lot of times doesn't sound like, A, you can be forgiven. It's good news. God loves you. He's reaching out to you. When that message is shared, people want to hear it. And they did for him. And so people would line up at his door and desire to hear what he had to say about Jesus. Had quite a ministry there. We know from the rest of history that ultimately he never left Rome. He stayed there for a while, was thrown into a dungeon. Um, when the emperor turned on the Jews and drove the Jews out and began to persecute Christians, of course, Nero ultimately is a, you know, just a complete lunatic, blamed you know, the Christians for everything that was wrong in the nation. Um, and Paul ended up being, being um, murdered, killed. Uh, capital punishment, never convicted of a crime, just killed for convenience sake and because his life was a challenge to others. It's interesting that there are some people who would challenge the veracity of the book of Acts um, and say that, you know, I doubt if it was an eyewitness, but there are so many details in Acts that have been confirmed. But not only that, to me, one of the greatest arguments for the historicity of Acts um, and for its early date of authorship is that if you were going to make up a story about Paul, you wouldn't miss the fact that he died. So clearly this had to have been written, and it was written to a Roman official, and so it was certainly written when Paul was still alive or his death would have appeared in the book. So this is a an old historical account of, of the journeys and the life of, of the early church, of Peter, and then later the bulk of the book of the Apostle Paul. And I, every time I read this book, I just, I love Paul that much more. The guy just charms me. Rough around the edges, bold and fearless, um, weak at the same time, and not afraid to be vulnerable not afraid to be passionate. Um, and everything about Paul was about giving people the good news. May God see that in all of us, that that's what matters to us, that that's the lives that we live. Um, hey, pray for me this week. I'm heading out early, early tomorrow morning to go up to Lake Tahoe to, um, well, Friday and Saturday, I'm speaking at a men's retreat up there. I went a day early just to spend some time with the Lord. Um, I'll be back Saturday night, so I'll be here on Sunday. Next Wednesday, we'll, well, on the trip, I'll work out for sure what we'll, what we'll go into next. We still have 2nd um, and 3rd John, the book of Jude, and the book of Philemon. So I'll have to see how long I'm going to take on 1st John on Sunday mornings and pace that out and, uh, because I want to finish the Bible, except for Revelation, by the end of the year, before Christmas. And then... Uh, and then at that point, we'll do the book of Revelation. I think I'm going to do it on Sunday mornings and just take as much time as it takes to go through that book. On Wednesday nights, we'll be doing something else. It'll be something, um, something fun, I, I'm sure. 
Um, I mean, I can't build it up too much because I really have no idea what it's going to be, but, <laughs> but I'll come up with something. And uh, so, uh, oh, by the way, um, just to bring you up to snuff on the timing of the building project, they've given me their word that they should have the construction fence down by the end of this week so that we will be able to get into more of the parking. The bathroom back there should have two more weeks and those bathrooms are supposed to be opened up and I'm trying to get them to pull this wall down before our Christmas Eve service so that we can have room for everybody for the holidays. So pray about that to go smoothly or pray about me to keep my cool if it doesn't. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for your word. And to think of these stories and that they're true. And for us to transport ourselves back in time and to see what that must have been like for Paul standing there by himself in an arena full of people in front of a king and a governor sharing his story about the good news. And then whether chained in a house or whether on a ship that was breaking up or on an island full of strangers, every opportunity, Lord Jesus, he took you with him. May we emulate that. May we not force it in an awkward way and cram you down people's throats, but may we look for a chance to tell people our story, your story. And we thank you for your word and how it feeds us. And often just even a little sliver of it will, will hit us in a way that is revolutionary and life-changing. And so, Lord, help us to listen to your word and to respond to it. We love you so much. And, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>